0: We'll continue our look into the Gospel of John. <clears throat> so far we have seen that John has introduced us to the eternal Word, the Word that was with God from the beginning, the One who created the world that He has entered into, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We've looked at how John the Baptist, the messenger and the forerunner of Christ, the one to whom all the prophets and all the Old Testament has spoken of, has declared the coming of the Messiah. As John the Baptist has introduced some of his disciples to Jesus, we learned last week that some of these men, some of these disciples were called and began to follow Him. And they spent at least a day or so with him, getting to know who he was, listening to his message, and at the end of that, being convinced that he really is the promised Messiah. And so now, here in John chapter 2, Jesus begins his public ministry. As far as John records, the public ministry of Jesus begins in chapter 2, and will end in chapter 12. And then in verses 13 through 17, Jesus begins his private ministry to the disciples in the final preparation for his departure. And then chapters 18 through 21 will deal with his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and the restoration of Peter back to a full-fledged apostle and disciple of Christ. The Gospels as a whole record 35 different miracles, but John has chosen to communicate only eight Each of these miracles are different in John's Gospel, and there are no two alike. Some that John reports, as we'll look at here, are only recorded in John. There are many other miracles that Jesus did as recorded in the Gospels that John chooses not to use as a part of his writing. Christ has healed many blind people, but John will record only one. We know that Jesus fed the multitudes at least twice, but John records only once. He takes illustrations from the variety of miracles that Christ has performed and uses these miracles to show us what is the thesis of his gospel, that Jesus is God. So the first one that we look at here is Jesus turning the water into wine. In these miracles that we are going to look at over the next several months, Christ's purpose is to display his glory and his deity the glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, as we read in John 1, verse 14. And He wanted to reveal by His miracles that He was, in fact, God, the Messiah, in control of nature and in control of all the forces of the universe. You know, when we read the miracles that Jesus performed, we go, wow, that is amazing. But it is nothing compared to what He has already done by speaking this universe into existence. Jesus could have done far more than He did, and I'm sure that not everything He did was recorded, but each of these miracles show that He is in fact the ruler of this universe. Now when Jesus performed miracles, He didn't do so to dazzle the crowds. He didn't do it as a means of enlarging the group that was following Him. He performed these miracles to show His glory and to prove His deity. And John will use these eight miracles to verify the glory of Christ. So this first miracle that's recorded here, the turning of water into wine. The other Gospel writers don't record this and it's very likely as we looked at last week that the other Gospel writers were not yet a part of the group known as the disciples and were not yet following Christ. What we have here is the same group That was the result of John the Baptist sharing with John the Apostle and Andrew. And Andrew going to get his brother Simon Peter. And then Jesus calling Philip and Philip going and getting Nathaniel. That is very likely the group of disciples that are here. Now what's important for us to understand is this miracle is not about the wine. It's not about the wine. It is about Jesus revealing to His disciples both His glory... And his deity. And I have heard through the years many, many people say that if Jesus didn't want us to drink alcohol or wine, then why did he turn the water into wine? And it becomes permission, if you will, for everyone to drink wine and alcoholic beverages without any thought or any consideration to what actually takes place here at the miracle of Cana. So, why did Jesus turn the water into wine? Well, I'm hoping that at the end of our message, you'll be able to answer that question for yourself, and you won't need to listen to somebody else's explanation. So let's look at what the Word of God says to us in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in Him. So let's begin as we look at number one, the setting. The setting of this miracle is going to take place as described for us in verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. So the first part of this is the time. It is the third day and there's a lot of discrepancy about what the third day might actually mean. But most believe that this is the third day after the calling of Philip and Nathaniel coming to be a part of that group, and they have stayed with Jesus for at least a day to hear him speak, to listen to his claims, verifying what John the Baptist had said, and they needed a little bit of time to travel from where they were to the village of Cana, and so very likely the third day is in fact the third day after John the Baptist said to John and Andrew, Behold the Lamb of God. So the time is the third day, and the event here is a wedding. Now, a wedding is a major social event in biblical times. In a small village like Cana, it was probably one of the social events of the year when little John and little Mary, whom we've known from the very beginning of their lives, are going to get married, and we're going to be a part of this grand celebration. Unlike modern weddings, Jewish weddings, especially in this period, lasted for up to a full week. It wasn't just a three-hour ordeal on a Saturday afternoon or a Friday evening. It was a lengthy event that lasted for several days. Weddings typically were conducted on a Wednesday. There was a lengthy betrothal period that lasted for many, many months And the wedding ceremony was actually the culmination of this betrothal period. It was the day has finally come and we are all finally here and we are going to be a part of this wedding. Now, incidentally, the groom typically paid for the wedding. Now, some of you guys would like to go back and say, man, I'd like to redo that one over again. Poor John Taylor, who's not here today, has four daughters. And he's going to have to find a way to get married. I'm sure he'll find a way. Don't feel guilty, girls. It's always a privilege for mom and dad to provide. But this lengthy betrothal period was actually considered to be a legal marriage, even though they had not yet pronounced their vows and had been declared to be husband and wife. So this betrothal period that is lasted for several months, which is now ending in this very important ceremony, gives an insight into the seriousness with which these people considered weddings to take place. Now, if you're familiar with the betrothal period, this is brought to our attention in the genealogy and the history that Matthew provides for us when he talks about The joining of Mary and Joseph together. We read this in Matthew chapter 1. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So in the betrothal period, they didn't live together. They were legally married, but they were still living separate lives with their families. And so the ceremony now was the culmination and the grand celebration of this lengthy betrothal period. The important thing for us to take from this is you're not married until you say, I do. You can be in love. You can be absolutely convinced. You could have heard it from God Himself, but we are not legally Married, We are not married in the sight of God until we stand and say, I do. The ceremony is not an unimportant requirement or a technicality, and marriage isn't just a piece of paper. It is an incredibly important part of God's institution, His ordinance, and the way He has designed for man and woman to come together and populate the earth and reflect Him to a lost world. So we've seen the time, we've seen the event, now we see the participants. The participants here are Mary and his disciples. Now, what was interesting for me to learn is that in the Gospel of John, he never refers to Mary by her name. He always calls her the mother of Jesus. So here we have the mother of Jesus who has some official capacity within the wedding. Now, where Mary lived in Nazareth, was only about nine miles from Cana of Galilee. And so very likely the region was familiar with one another. And so Mary has been included in this wedding. She has some kind of responsibility. We see that by her bringing to Jesus' attention that there is no wine. And we also see that by the servants listening to and then following the instructions That she has given. Now, as I've already mentioned, the disciples here is not the full group. It is likely only Andrew and Peter and Philip, and Nathaniel, and John himself. So that is the setting. This is where we are. We're in Cana at a wedding. It's a grand celebration, and here's number two. The situation. There's a big problem. Verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." So the big issue here is they are out of wine. Now. That doesn't mean as much to us as it did to them in that custom and in that culture. When they ran out of wine, it meant that they had nothing of any kind to drink. Now, wine was the staple drink of the Near Eastern culture, and it was that way because there was a lack of clean drinking water. You know, in our world today, there's a vast portion of our world that struggles with having Clean drinking water. If you travel down to South America, the first thing I tell you is don't drink the water, right? Bring bottled water. Drink only bottled water. Make sure that it has been sterilized because there was not any suitable water to drink in most of this part of the world. So the wine that is being referenced here is typically diluted by anywhere from 70 to 90%. So it's one ounce of wine. To seven to nine ounces of water, so that was how you were hydrated. That is how you kept from passing out in this hot and arid region of the world. Now it was very possible to drink large amounts of wine and not get drunk from that. But if you didn't dilute it in the way that you would to make it clean drinking water, then make no mistake about it. You could drink a lot of wine and you'd get a lot of drunk. That's just the way it would work, right? So, what we want to understand in this is this, the Bible does not forbid the drinking of wine. We see this all the way back in Psalm 104. And it says in Psalm 104 that He, God, causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that He may bring forth Food from the earth, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. So they understood wine, just as they would the agricultural produce, it was God's faithful provision to meet the needs of human life. And Then we see in First Timothy chapter five, Paul writes this to his protege, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Timothy was taking a position of absence. I'm not going to drink any wine. I want my testimony to be untainted. And the reason that Paul says them drink a little wine, is because Timothy was not able to find anything that was clean to drink, and he struggled from stomach issues because he was not drinking anything that had been sterilized with some kind of a fermented beverage. So the Bible does not forbid the drinking of wine, but it does forbid <laughs> drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul would go on and speak in even more forceful terms in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, listen to this, if he is an immoral person, or a covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So in Paul's estimation, a drunkard, somebody who was given to drunkenness, was leaped it was grouped in with the same category as these other people who live what we would consider to be unholy lives. So The Bible doesn't forbid the drinking of wine. It does forbid drinking with that. You will do what you will with your Christian liberty in that regard. So the problem is there is no wine at the wedding. Now, this is a major social function in a wedding in this Near Eastern culture in the first century. It is worse than running out of cake. It's worse than running out of punch. For you to run out of wine at a Jewish wedding would have brought embarrassment to the family for years. In fact, some have said that the the bride's family could actually bring a lawsuit against the groom's family for not providing what was expected at this wedding. Think about that. When was the last time you didn't get any cake at a wedding? Say, well, I'm going to sue you because I didn't get my piece of cake. We don't think that way. But this is a major issue within this Jewish custom and this Jewish culture. Family embarrassment because the bridegroom's family did not provide what they were responsible to responsible provide At this wedding. So, Mary, because of her responsibility with this wedding, whatever that meant, if she was the co wedding coordinator or if she was the refreshments director, we don't know what it is, but she has some kind of involvement in here. And by bringing Jesus' attention to the lack of wine, communicates that she is expecting him to do something. We can only speculate what she really thought he might do, but she is expecting him to do something. Here's his response. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now before that sounds offensive to you, like Jesus is rebuking His mother, which some have led to as a conclusion of what is stated here, we need to understand the culture here and the terminology that is being used. For Jesus to say woman is the modern equivalent of us saying ma'am. So it's polite, but it's not intimate. Don't make any mistake about that. It is a polite greeting, maybe not common for your mother, but it is not an intimate greeting. This is important because it signals a change in the relationship between Jesus and His mother. He didn't call her mother. He called her ma'am. So this is important because no longer is it mother and son relationship, but it is now the Son of God and her Messiah. Think about that. The one that gave birth to the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, is in fact of need of this young baby to become the Messiah and to be her personal Lord and Savior. Mary knew that that day would come, but most doubt that she expected it to come today. Today thinking back at what the other Gospel writers share with us about the birth of Christ and all of the events that took place in a supernatural way that was not only prophesied, but also carried forth, and how Mary was made aware of this. You have to know that throughout all of Jesus' life, it's not a matter of if, it's when. When is this thing going to happen? When will this dramatic change in our relationship take place? Let's go back and look at Luke chapter 1. Here's what was said by the angel Gabriel who showed up out of nowhere and spoke these words to Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of a salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name Him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And His kingdom will have no end. Now this is Mary, who's probably 15 or 16 years old. And she's only promised... To Joseph. They are not married. They have not consummated the wedding relationship. And Gabriel shows up and says, Hey, you're going to bear, bear a son, and it's going to be a supernatural occurrence, and he is going to be the son of the Most High God, and he's going to rule on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. Do you think Mary forgot those words from the angel Gabriel? Do you think Mary forgot about what was prophesied to her by the prophetess Anna and what Simeon said when Jesus was circumcised in the temple? Mary knew that something was going to happen and that something was going to change because after all, she had only been promised to David and the Holy Spirit hovered over her and inside of her was conceived this baby although she had not consummated the relationship. His birth was followed up by the arrival of shepherds and of wise men. And so Mary is now waiting for Jesus' pursuit to the throne of David to begin. It's possible that Mary knew that Jesus had supernatural capacity to solve this problem and that she is asking Him to do something about it. But it would be pure speculation for her to say, well, I know what he's going to do. Think about this. There were no quickie stops where you could run down and get 120 to 150 gallons of wine. Think about how limited travel was in those days. Yet she's asking Jesus to do something about this problem that is going to bring disgrace to this family. And Jesus says, why is this my problem? Literally, in the Greek, what it says is, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? What's the big deal about there not being any wine at this wedding? What does that have to do with me and what does that really have to do with you? Even though you might be the refreshments director or the wedding coordinator, that is not our problem. Now, she may be asking for Him to reveal Himself. And if that is in fact what she is saying, and Jesus knowing her heart, He answers her and says that the right time has not yet come. His mission was the cross, and He is preoccupied with fulfilling the predetermined plan of God Not particularly what his mother wants him to do. His public ministry would not be defined by human agenda and it would not be dictated to him by his relationship with his mother or with any other. And Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. This phrase is used five times in John's Gospel. It's not always word for word, but it's the exact same meaning in the way it is phrased. And what Jesus is basically saying here is that it is not yet time for me to fully reveal to the world who I am. When you see that the hour has not yet come, you see that statement. The hour refers to his death and his exaltation. God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross, to conquer sin through His perfect sacrifice, to be victorious over death, negating the consequence of sin, through His resurrection and His eventual ascension, that is what is meant by His hour, and His hour had not yet come. Now, we know this because we're looking at His words in reverse, we're looking at them after the fact. But at the time that He said these things to Mary, and at the time He says these things to His disciples and to others, they have no clue what He means. They are completely in the dark. Everything that Jesus did would point towards the cross. But they were done for that purpose only, to point people to the cross His teaching and His miracles and His ministry in general was a partial revealing of who He was apart from understanding what His hour fully meant. Apart from the cross, everything that Jesus did was a partial revealing of who He actually was. So Jesus says, you're asking me to do something and this is not my problem and my time has not yet come. And we see next her reaction. Her reaction in verse 5 His mother said to the servants, whatever He says to you, do it. Do whatever He says. I don't think she has any idea what Jesus is going to do. Certainly she's aware of the limitations that exist, but to think that He is going to make something out of nothing probably did not enter into her mind. But she says nonetheless to the servants, do whatever He says. And by the way, Mary is giving some great advice here, isn't she? Whatever Jesus says to do, Do it. Whatever he says not to do, then don't do it. Now what's very interesting is that after this little encounter that's recorded here in verses 1 through 5, Mary fades completely out of the Gospel of John and you don't hear anything about Mary again until the cross of Christ same thing takes place with John the Baptist. And the reason is that John wants to make sure that all of his readers know that this is about Jesus and about him alone. It's not about the one who gave birth, it's not about the one who proclaimed his coming, it is about the one. So that's the problem, that there is no wine. Number three, the big thing we're looking at here now, is the supply. Verses 6 and 7. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Number one, you have nothing but ordinary pots. These pots have been sitting there for the entire wedding celebration These pots filled with water or however much water would have been in these pots at this time were used for ceremonial cleansing, not really for sanitation. It wasn't a way to get your hands clean before you ate. It was a part of a Jewish ceremonial ritual that the Pharisees had instituted as another means of controlling every aspect of Jewish people's lives. This was a very important part of the first century Jewish custom, we see this reference in the in the Gospel of Mark in verses chapter seven, three, and four. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders, not the Word of God and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves, and there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So this was not prescribed by God, but it was an extension of the way the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, were trying to control the people's lives. So these pots hold anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons each. That would mean that there is the capacity for anywhere between 150 and 180 gallons of water to be stored in these pots. So we have ordinary pots, and we have ordinary water. Jesus tells them to fill the pots to the brim. Now, this is something you don't really think about: is that it's not easy to go and get 150 to 180 gallons of water. You don't just hook up the hose to the spigot and stick it in the pot, do you? Where do you get that kind of water? You got to go and get it. So it takes some time to do this. You think about 50-gallon barrel, and there being anywhere from three to four of those needing to be filled, and it took these servants some time to go and get this water. And what's also very interesting about this encounter, what John includes, is that they are filled to the brim. That means you can't hold any more water. And they wanted, John wants the readers to make sure, John wants to make sure his readers understand that there was no possibility that anything else had been added to these pots other than the water water. That these servants have just gone to fetch from the well, or from the stream, or from wherever they got it. Number three, we see the extraordinary result: ordinary pot, ordinary water, and extraordinary result from this. Verse nine: When the head waiter tasted the water which had come from the which had become wine, and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now the role of the head waiter was to test everything before it went out to the people to make sure that it was going to be good. And so when the head tastes this newly created wine, He declares that it was the best wine. This ordinary water, come from an ordinary pot, was transformed into the absolute best wine. Now the groom, who was about to be permanently embarrassed and disgrace for not having enough wine for this wedding feast was now being celebrated for having saved the best wine until the end. Now, when it says here that every man serves the good wine first when the people have drunk freely, the verb there means that the people have actually become quite drunk. That does not mean that this is what is taking place, but this is the head waiter's experience. is that everybody gets drunk And then the bad wine comes out and nobody really cares because they're already drunk. That's kind of what's being said here. But the head waiter notices that the absolute best wine has been saved to the very, very end. Imagine what the groom's response was when the head waiter came to him and said, you've saved the best wine till last. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I know we're running out of wine. I know there's a big problem. Where did all this wine come from? And I don't have any idea how it became the best wine because we pretty much did what everybody else does. Imagine his shock when he finds out that not only has this embarrassment been spared, but he's being celebrated because he has saved the absolute best wine until the very end. This wine didn't come from the grapes as a result of the sun and the rain and the careful cultivation. It came from the very hand of God as Jesus simply turned it into wine. He didn't speak it. He didn't point at it. He didn't do abracadabra. He didn't do anything. It just became the absolute best wine. And how could we expect it to be anything less than the very best having come from the hand of God? Now, number four, the significance of The significance of this event. The significance of what all that John has said. And this is where we really want to hang our hat. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus didn't turn the water into wine to condone drinking. He didn't perform this miracle at a wedding to stamp His approval of the institution of marriage. We can read a lot into that. But what we can say without any debate is that Jesus did what He did to display His glory. The one and only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. This is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus does. So to display His glory means that He did this to display all that God is in all of His character, and all of His person, encompassing all of His attributes. His omnipotence, His omniscience, His omnipresence, His kindness, His mercy, His grace. Everything that God is is displayed in these miracles as a means of directing people to the cross so that they know who this man Jesus really is. Jesus is displaying his deity, he's displaying his glory that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And he does this for number two to confirm the disciples' faith. Remember, these five guys just met Jesus about three days ago and they've heard what John the Baptist has said and they've sat and they've talked with Jesus and they've heard what He has said and now they see for themselves what this Jesus is capable of doing. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 34, John himself, the Apostle says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Jesus' words in verse 39, when the disciples want to spend some time with Him, says, Come and see. Come and see who I really am. And we learn from that encounter that they believed in Him. It was the birthing of their faith. And now they have very first-hand experience what it is that Jesus could actually do. Look back at verse 9 in chapter 2. The head waiter who tasted the water did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew the water knew where it came from. Isn't that right? Now look ahead into verse 12, where we'll pick up next week. And after this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. You know, there's no mention of the servants who saw what Jesus did. There's no mention of a big crowd now following with Jesus. So what happened to these servants who saw this miracle? They didn't believe. I mean, they believed, but they didn't believe. Here's the point. Those who will come and see who He is, those who want to truly meet Jesus, will follow Him. Knowing him and meeting him is not an intellectual understanding or agreement that he is the Son of God or that he could do these things. Meeting Jesus and knowing Jesus means I am going to follow him, whatever that means. I guarantee you, these five guys had no idea what was ahead of them. But I can promise you this they followed the Lord. And most followed them to their death as martyrs because they knew who He was. They had seen it firsthand. If you're sitting here today and you know intellectually who Jesus is, and you have no doubt about what Jesus can do, but you've never given your life to Him, you don't know Him, you've not yet met Him. But Jesus offers an invitation to come and see Find out who I really am. Would you bow your heads in prayer, please? Father, we are thankful that you have enabled us to know who you are. We know throughout the Gospel writings that Jesus performed many, many, many miracles and the people always clamored for another sign and yet they still didn't believe. God, I pray that you would rid us of the need to see evidence of who you are but that we would instead just by faith accept who You are and come to You and give our very best to You. Father, that begins at salvation, but it continues through every day of our life. God, even now in the stillness of our own heart and mind, would You remind us that this Jesus is the Son of the Most High God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world the one who calls us to come and see who he is. God, would you strip away our man-made traditions and our fabricated religion and our moralism to do good and to try to live an upright life and just simply come to you. Father, we pray that you'd speak to our heart, that you, through the work of your Spirit, would meet our need, that you would reveal yourself to us more fully. And that as a result, we would be willing to follow you more closely. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we stand here ready to sing this last song, I just want to remind you that God is not obligated to let us know who He is. It's a tremendous blessing for us to be gathered together to know the truth, to have been changed by the truth, and to have the privilege to sing to Him. Would you stand as we sing?